0: want me to do that again no no keep going okay Uh, we'll do it live (laughs) we'll do it live greetings dear listeners this is jonah goldberg the host of the remnant podcast i'm here with my amanuensis uh, jack butler Uh, this is the first time i have been in the offices of ai or in this podcast studio in almost a month because I've been on the road doing all sorts of exciting things. I think it is actually, it's been four
1: weeks. Has it really? Well, that's, yeah.
0: some people call that a month.
1: Yeah. Oh, so okay. that's, that's, I wasn't trying to correct you, I was actually giving you evidence for being correct. Oh, excellent. Uh, before we move on, I should say that this week's
0: episode, or this episode, I don't know if we'll have another one this week, I kind of doubt it, but we'll see, um, is brought to you by Untuckit and by Zip Recruiter. We'll hear more about these two wonderful advertisers who have been sponsors of the show off and on for a while now later on. So, what are we going to do today? We don't have a guest. Uh, I got back from Espana. Actually, actually, technically, I got back from London on uh, Friday. We went on a family vacation. Well, first I went to AEI's World Forum, which was... This great but off the record thing where things happened that were very interesting that I cannot report upon. Um conversations were had, revelations were made, uh no nope. alien, alien corpses were, there were, a were autopsied. Of um oxen were sacrificed to Baal, all the all the good stuff. I oh, know
1: that's that's not this isn't Bohemian Grove. Let's be Um and <laughs> And then um and from there,
0: my wife, daughter and I, uh, we went to Spain. We spent almost a week in Barcelona, which is not pronounced Barcelona in Barcelona. It is only pronounced Barcelona by the, uh, Castilian hegemons who cruelly rule over what should be an independent Catalan. But we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Whoa. And from there, we went to London and, uh, in part because uh, my wife is not remotely high-maintenance about almost anything except hotels and air travel. And the only way I could make um, flying business class work was with lots of frequent flyer miles, and that meant coming back via London. And um, and my daughter really wanted to go to theater in London, so we did that too. And then for those of you who follow me on Twitter, you might know this, but long flight back, uh, about seven and a half hours uh, from Heathrow to Dulles. And we're just about to come down through the clouds for the approach to land on time at around three forty five when quack boom uh there's a man on the wing <laughs> the plane was struck by lightning, and uh you, with the whoa, 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 whoa actually struck literally struck by lightning oh I didn't know that yeah yeah yeah, we were struck by lightning like hit by a bolt of lightning encountered our plane and um Wow. Uh, which I Googled and I looked up later and it's, it's rare, but planes are all designed for it because they'd have to be. Otherwise, at least once a year, a plane would come crashing out of the skies because lightning destroyed it. And they're built to take it, but it's still pretty freaky and really loud. And of course, my daughter thought it was cool and <laughs> I was, I was a little more shaken up about it. I got, a, I got issues with turbulence ever since I had a kid. And, um, so long story short, it wasn't so much the lightning strike that made it impossible for us to land, but the weather and th- that made the lightning possible was such that we couldn't land at Dulles, so we circled Dulles for about 45 minutes until this very un- classically understated, keep calm and carry on type British pilot says, I can't do a British accent, but he says, uh, so we've missed our window, we're running out of fuel, so we have to <laughs> go to BWI to land, and so, Which was better because a lot of planes were diverted to Philly, but still, it was a pain in the ass. And we get to BWI, we land, and then the pilot is like, uh, okay, we're going to assess some things. Also, please make room for the paramedics to come on board because there's somebody – who's not feeling very well, uh, and, which seemed to be pretty euphemistic. Sh- and Is th- there a doctor on board? <laughs> um, and, and then the pilot comes back on and says, okay, the passenger's been taken off, and we promise you we're going to do everything we can to get you back to Dulles. And it turned out what they meant by that was trying to put everybody on buses back <laughs> to Dulles, which is for people who know this area – Buses from BWI to Dulles at rush hour is, um.
1: Might as well run the distance. Pretty much.
0: I mean, like, or, I mean, like, I think a more pleasant experience would be leaving Shawshank Prison the way Andy Dufresne did. (laughs) And, um, and at first they weren't going to let us, like, get a cab from BWI and all the rest, and it was just a mayhem. And then they're like, um, oh, at one point they were talking about how they would fly back over there once they refueled. But then he gets back on the phone and says the engineers have looked and apparently the da- damage from the lightning is more extensive than we thought. So that's going <laughs> to take a while to look at. Good thing good thing not to tell people
1: in the air probably.
0: Yeah. So they're going to tow us to some hangar and let us off where we can collect our bags and get on some buses and yada, yada, yada. And then they bring out the tractor to pull the plane and the tractor breaks trying to pull the plane. Wow. And so they had to pull out a second tractor and then – they finally tow the thing to a gate, but the plane is so friggin' huge that they they can't get the gate thing to attach to the door. <laughs> anyway, finally they do let us off. They do actually let us get cabs if we want. We had to do a head count of every single person and you get through customs. And so at the end of a seven and a half hour flight, it was another four and a half five hours before we got home. It was a long, long day.
1: Wow. So, so you can. Uh, I so I have a theory here. I think this is my fault. I'll explain why
0: as you know I'm open to
1: it yeah so in my family we have this thing known that we, we've we've started calling the Butler family travel curse and it's that every trip that we would take together as a family or that even individual members of our family would take or that trips that individual members of the family would be on with other people at the end of the trip nowhere nowhere like at the beginning or in the in the bulk of it, But at the very end, something bad happens. And I had an experience very similar to this um, flying from Rome back to Atlanta uh, just before I started working for you where there was a a storm. A chaperone
0: for some high school kids. Yes,
1: at at my high school. And, um, yeah, there was a storm over Atlanta, and we couldn't land. And so we were circling for so long that we ran out of fuel and had to. we ended up going to some municipal airport in Alabama. And then we missed – all of these flights were – uh pre arranged by this tour company. But because we missed the one flight that we were all going to be on, we then um, we chaperones then had to figure out how to get forty kids back to the Cincinnati area on like six different planes. Nice. It was a nightmare. Um so yeah, I mean I now that and I've had other experiences like that too. Always at the end of a trip, never at the beginning or in the middle. Mm-hmm. And since since my aura, I've been working for you long enough that my aura can could have rubbed off on you. I, you could, it could be my fault. Yeah, I'm
0: not sure they withstand close scientific scrutiny, but I'm gonna I'm gonna take it.
1: Yeah, I mean, what do you what do you care about close scientific scrutiny? Aren't you the you're, aren't you the man who loves curses? I do. Actually, I have a very I have a very weak spot for curses. I
0: think that you know, what is it Max Weber said that the defining attribute of our age is the disenchantment of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think curses, like the curse of the Bambino, that kind of thing, should be revered and respected for as long as they can. Even if they're just the universe accidentally flipping heads on a coin for a really long stretch, I think they're kind of cool things. But we'll, maybe we'll do a whole episode on curses at some point. Curses and the paranormal. I know that would make you happy.
1: It would make me very happy.
0: Um, so I guess we should do a little rank punditry and then I'll do more travel log and whatnot. I don't know. Uh, we're recording this on Tuesday. Yes. March 26th. Mm-hmm. The Mueller news is now being masticated for a second or third full day. And, um, I guess I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, I'm still in wait and see mode. And, um, I think, so here's, here's, you know, it, it, it this whole thing has aroused, I think, a lot of weirdness on all sides. Um I have, contrary to a thousand and one yammering bandersnatches on Twitter and elsewhere, I was never hugely invested in the Russia collusion thing. Um There seems to be this thing out there, the sort of wishful thinking thing that says, uh, anybody who's critical of Trump must mean that they were all in on the collusion stuff and therefore because the collusion thing has been allegedly debunked, this is some huge blow for people like Jonah Goldberg or David French who also was never particularly invested in the, the collusion stuff. Um, I've always said I was a, I was a skeptic of the hard version of collusion, but the softer version of collusion happened in our, We know about, you know, we know that the Trump campaign wanted to collude with Russia. They took the meeting in the Trump Tower, which was billed as an emissary from the Russian government. Mm -hmm. We've heard them defend taking information from, you know, taking that meeting. We've heard the president defend it. We heard the president in a public speech call on Russia to continue hacking. This does not mean that the hard version, which is this, you know, nefarious plot of collusion between the, you know, or this conspiracy between uh, Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin took place. I was always skeptical of that. But the reason for the skepticism, and I guess this is one of the reasons why I'm so dyspeptic about all of the reactions to this, the reason why I was skeptical about the the hard version of it, you know, the extreme version, the real conspiracy theory version of, of collusion, let's just call it the Hillary Clinton version of collusion, <laughs> was that I didn't think the Trump campaign was... Capable of it. I mean, the people, the people who are calling for a reckoning, right? I mean, it's like everybody and his little sister on the on a certain segment of the right is out there, like Kurt Russell in um, Tombstone, saying, you know, uh, there's going to be a reckoning uh, for everybody who believed in the the hard version of the collusion story or reported that. And I got no problem criticizing the the the. People in the media who went way ahead of the facts, and I think what's his face? Brennan, John Brennan, should never be taken seriously again. I mean, he's going around saying, I got bad information. This guy was the freaking head of what? The CIA. And now he's sort of saying, oh, well, you know, my bad. I, you know, that could, that, that's outrageous. And so I have no problem with holding a lot of those people accountable. The problem I have is with the sort of, um, you know, the, I don't know, the, what adjectives should we give it? The, the Gorkian. View of this that, as in Seb Gorka. Now that he's not at Fox anymore, that's I, a good adjective. I like you, that. You like Gorkian. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a go certain amount that. of onomatopoeia about it too. It sounds like what it is. Yeah. Um, don't don't gork out on me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the I grok gork. Um, um, uh, but this idea that it was a ludicrous thing to ever believe that that Trump would ever collude with Russia or that he was ever that that there was any possibility that this was true i just find ridiculous i i always thought it was possibly true but i was skeptical because i didn't think the trump campaign could manage it and that they could keep it secret we certainly know that the trump campaign was full of people who literally colluded with russia you know or with russian emissaries i mean uh, manafort's going to probably spend the rest of his life in jail and we know that he was perfectly happy to work for putin or putin you know peons um, and you know people like Papadopoulos and all these other people. So we and we knew that Don Jr. took that meeting, and the entire campaign leadership was there with them at Trump Tower. And so this idea now, sort of retrospectively, that anybody who gave any credence to the possibility that there that they could have been the hard version of collusion, that somehow they were deliberately peddling a lie, or that they were, you know. Examples of the paranoid style in American politics and believing in some insane conspiracy theory—I just think is ludicrous. And there's this p- incredible sort of piling on from people on the right who want to make it seem like it was insane to want to wait and see what Mueller found. And I think I have—I have like zero regrets about the positions I've taken on all of this. I think I've written that I was a Trump uh, collusion skeptic a dozen times, but I always thought. Donald Trump was morally capable of it. He was ethically capable of it. I just didn't think he was managerial of it, capable of it. And now we're sort of going into the same phase with the, the sort of the deep state stuff, right? Um, I think it's entirely possible that the, the conspiracy theory, which is uh, it is, that, you know, Strzok and Page and all those guys were part of a a very sketchy, possibly criminal, certainly unethical effort – to cut corners to go after Donald Trump. But we don't know that either. So I'm sort of, you know, I'm I I I certainly believe the soft versions of it that there were a bunch of partisans and they didn't like Trump and that they were sort of enmeshed with with sort of the Democratic Party and and there were partisans and they violated their their the the canons of the FBI or the Department of Justice. A lot of that seems already obvious to me. But that doesn't necessarily mean the extreme version Of that conspiracy theory is true too. I mean, you had, you had guys on, you know, primetime television talking about how Mueller was the leader of one of the three major deep state crime families. Uh, and it just seems like there's a paranoid style that people are invested in on both sides of this stuff that I think is, um, that I just want no part of. And I don't apologize for being, you know, uh, sort of in the gray middle on all of it because I think, that's probably where the truth lies. And so back to more punditry or prognosticatory punditry, is that the right word? Sure. Uh, (laughs) I think that uh, there are folks on the left who are losing their minds and think that the bar bar summary letter is a cover-up, right? It's a straight-on cover-up. And that strikes me as implausible just as a matter of logic. If Mueller found that in fact, Trump did collude, right, or that he did obstruct justice and Barr materially mischaracterized what the report said, Mueller would just come forward and say, you're lying about what the report says. Um, and the
1: seventh seal would open. That's right.
0: Or <laughs> members of Mueller's team who are, by all accounts, more partisan and more liberal than Mueller is, they would certainly come forward and say, hey, let's. that's not true. That's not what the report says. Um. This is eventually going to get to Congress. Congress is going to know what the report says. Barr is not an idiot. And I actually think he's probably a pretty straight shooter and an ethical guy. And um, I mean, I agree with him on everything, but that's fine. He has zero incentive to manifestly and materially distort what Mueller said, because he knows better than anybody that the truth will come out. And if it comes out that he lied, just straight up lied His career is over. Maybe he gets – maybe he goes to jail. I mean there's like – there would be real consequences for that and he doesn't need that. He's at the end of his – You know, this is the swan song of his career. He's got this great reputation in Washington. He's not going to throw that away to cover up something that's going to be revealed anyway for Donald Trump. So I think that the letter is in general an accurate description of what the Mueller report found. That said, there may be lawyerly – corner cutting lawyerly parsing going on. I think Will Salatan we could put in the show notes had a good piece at Slate talking about the sort of weasel words of some of the letter and I think that's entirely possible. And I want to see the Mueller report come out or as much of it as possible come out. I suspect that it will eventually come out one way or the other. You just can't keep that kind of thing secret. It's, it's sort of like <laughs> one of my favorite lines from the Simpsons is with a uh, where Bart is over playing at Ralph Wiggum's house and, you know, and Ralph's dad is the, is Chief Wiggum, the police guy, police officer. And Chief Wiggum comes up and he yells at the kids, what is your strange fascination with the forbidden closet of mystery? <laughs> Which is where he keeps all of his guns and stuff. And the Mueller report is the forbidden closet of mystery and everyone's going to want to know what's in it until we, don't, we, until they find out what's in it. And I suspect that there's a lot of stuff that is in the report that would be very bad politically or reputationally for Donald Trump, or at least that Donald Trump would see it that way. And so all of this sort of crowing that this is the end of it, that this is the um, that this is a I mean, it's not a total and complete exoneration of, of Donald Trump, but that this puts the whole thing to rest. I just think is just just naive in the extreme. And the fact that the the Trump people now want to go on a sort of of a witch hunt on their own to go after the people who started the investigation—that is one of the things that is guaranteed to make that more stuff comes out from the Mueller probe than the Trump people want. The smart thing to do was to be—it would be to take the high road, you know, be magnanimous and say, "Okay, now let's move on." But um, you know, maybe shocking to some people, that's not quite how Trump handles these kinds of things. So I think we did enough of that, don't you? Yeah. I'm tired of –
1: I'm really kind of tired of this story. I am too. I mean that's why I'm kind of glad that this part is over, you know? Yeah. Um, Although it seems to me that at least for the time being, the people like you who were sort of – hedging is the wrong word but who were never really saying strongly one way or the other about this. But always trusting Mueller as a a decent and a man of good integrity – are now in the best position because you can simultaneously have the same view of Mueller and of what we know about what he said so far. Whereas people who were out of, I don't know, caution or um, uh, what what have you, trying to sell Mueller's reputation before this report came out, now they are having to flip-flop about Mueller's <laughs> reputation right. to endorse the summary of his findings that we now have. So you've been, you've, congratulations, you're consistent. <laughs> it's a rare feat. Yeah, it's, uh,
0: I, I, thank you. I. Um, you know, like my colleague Andy McCarthy, who I, I, I love dearly, he has all sorts of perfectly legitimate criticisms about Mueller, some of which I have some disagreements with, like one of these ones that you hear a lot, um, hear from a lot of people, that it was outrageous for Mueller to hire all of these Democrats I get it. I think there's some merit to that. At the same time, I believe there's a federal statute that bars the asking or taking into considera- consideration partisan affiliation, um, while hiring these kinds of people. And also, even if informally you could sort of figure out that, hey, we need some more Republicans on here. Um, shockingly enough, uh, it is kind of hard to get mid-career Republicans to, uh, join a special counsel probe of the head of their own party. Um, so I've always thought there was some merit to that. I, I get it. Some of the individual personalities, as Andy has pointed out, were probably a bridge too far. Um, and there were other things that you could criticize the, the Mueller probe about, about, you know, the way they leveled some of the indictments and all the rest. But Andy was always both on the merits and as a matter of tactics, making the point that it was silly and 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 bad form for trump to be attacking Mueller directly in part because andy was like look Mueller's probably gonna exonerate yeah <laughs> you know the president and crapping all over this guy's reputation um is a bad is a bad tactical move never mind it's unfair and so uh you know i just there this this whole Tendency on both the right and the left to go for the most extreme narratives about things. I just, it more and more leaves me cold. And maybe it's just the cynicism of middle age that I find, you know, that the really pure and glorious narratives almost never materialize, but there's always exceptions to the rule. And one of them is Michael Avenatti's going to jail. <laughs> that makes me very happy. Yeah. I shouldn't say very happy, but it makes me pretty happy. <laughs> and, um, um, uh, uh for those you by now everyone knows about this, but like literally a half hour before so like at ten thirty yesterday on Monday, Avenatti announced that he was going to have this big press conference calling out Nike, and then a half hour later <laughs> the Department of Justice announced they were indicting him for trying to extort Nike. Which <laughs> uh, is just, just awesome. And um Also, I mean, there's some other good news. The Southern Poverty Law Center is just going up in flames, figuratively speaking. Um. Yeah, don't wanna, don't wanna get a Pedoritz there. Oh, well, so speaking of Pedoritz, uh, for listeners who don't know, my friend, our friend, John Pedoritz, the editor of commentary, one of my, um, colleagues on the Glop podcast, he has again deleted his. Well, I think this seems like it's for real. He says it's for real. He says it's permanent. And, um. You know, it's funny. Remember I asked David French the last time he was on about how such a good-hearted and decent and ob- observant um, and devout Christian could be into some of the more smutty popular culture stuff that he is? Um, not smutty by my standards, but certainly smutty by his <laughs> standards. And. And he said, look, you know, it's different horses for different courses and there are some people who really just can't handle drinking a little whiskey and there are other people who can handle it just fine and you just got to know where your limits are and know where your lines are. And I thought that was a good answer. I Pod seems to understand he can't be on Twitter. At the same time – so here's what happened because uh, I actually had dinner with Pod on Sunday night and uh he was down for the APAC meeting they were going to decide on what next year's weather looks like <laughs> and um uh and a sneak preview it's going to be cold it's going to be gray and it's going to last you for the rest of your life and uh so I look forward to that that that'll be great and um but anyway so uh Columbia Journalism School hired Lauren Duca and somebody else who are sort of silly people to teach a course on like teaching about, the, uh, reporting on the American right or something like that. Yeah. Which is just insane. I mean, it's just so insane to hire those people to do that. And, um, Pod joked that he says this, uh, the hiring of Lauren Duca and this, whatever the other person's name is, this is proof that we need to drop a neutron bomb on Columbia Journalism School and, and, and repopulate it with somebody or else. No, he
1: just said, J school should be because this proves J school should be neutron bombed. Right, and so neutron bombs not existing—they're not real. Well, I mean, uh, right, but I mean the
0: thing is, it, as Pod explained to me in the 1980s, n- neutron bomb jokes were very, very common. And part of the problem with the joke was he's dating himself <laughs> in that it used to be the kind of thing. Oh, you know, that would be a great you know neighborhood if you could just neutron bomb it, and the idea being like just replace it with different people, like. Uh huh. Some sort of like that East German poet line, whatever that was. And, uh, Dissolve
1: the people and elect another. Yeah. And um,
0: and I think that was Brecht. Was it Brecht? Um, I love the shampoo. And um, <laughs> uh, anyway, so like they they the the, the the all the wrong right people, whatever you want to call it, lost their minds and said John Podoritz is coming out for murdering journalists and um, strangely a
1: position strangely against interest. Yeah, for,
0: for for a journalist. Also, he lives remarkably close to Columbia Journalism School. The idea that he was actually in favor of neutron bombs. <laughs> anyway, the, the, the thing is, is, it's all so dumb. And uh, the way he tells me the story, he was in the middle of responding to like one of the Pod Save America people who was taking it deadly seriously. And he was like, "What am I doing? What am I doing with my life that I have to tell people I wasn't serious about neutron bombing the Columbia?" <laughs> and, and he's like, "I'm done. I'm done. I'm deleting my account." And so he walked away. And every time he does it, he says he's happier, but then he comes back on. So uh, I will miss him on Twitter, uh, but I'm kind of glad that he knows his 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 limitations.
1: Um, so there's that. Uh, How did we get on that? I can't even remember now. You said that the SPLC is going up in flames. Yes. Yeah, so and just, then you said figuratively. Figuratively. And then I said, no, yeah, don't want don't to get to Podoritz here.
0: So, I mean, we don't need to get – you know, it would actually be a good whole episode of the podcast that you get some – like Charlotte Hayes or somebody who's done a deep dive on the perfidy of the Southern Polarity Law Center. But the
1: places are – Which right. she has written about, what, for the Weekly Standard, yeah, what, a, about a decade ago? Was it that long ago? It, might, it may have been. Um – I kind of hope not because I remember reading it and I – I mean I've been reading things for a long time by my standards. But yeah. it still would sort of disturb me if it was that long ago. But I'll find it and put it in the show notes wherever it is. Yeah.
0: And so I, the the point being is that it's, it's been a racket and a shakedown operation for a very long time. It doesn't mean it's always wrong. I mean when you – it's it's very easy to be accurate when you call the Klan a hate group, right? But more and more they uh, – you know, there's sort of a – a sort of perfect material manifestation of the kind of thing I write about in my um underrated second book, The Tyranny <laughs> of HAs, um about how uh deeply ideological organizations pretend that they are dispassionate and objective arbiters of fact. You know, everything from the ABA, which would, you know, be very ideologically loaded and how a graded judicial nominees and pretend that it was just being objective to uh, um, places like Southern Law Poverty Law Center, which um, constantly was basically signaling out sometimes conservatives who I thought were too provocative or not too provocative but saying that they were in fact you know, uh, peddling hate speech and neo-Nazis and all that kind of stuff and like but, friend of the show Charles Murray for example that's right you know and the new york times and the washington post and lots of members of the mainstream media would treat the splc as if it was an independent expert uh, that was objective and even handed about this kind of stuff you know and i have some experience with this kind of stuff like when my uh my first book came out liberal fascism there were an enormous number of people who were in the sort of SPLC wannabe category who had a deep and in, deep investment in a specific definition of what uh what fascism was that goes all the way back to like Adorno and the Frankfurt school and the idea that I was questioning all of that just got their addresses over their heads in enormous ways but um I'm delighted to see the SPLC in this sort of freefall um I particularly uh, am amused that one of the main reasons why it's in so much trouble is because of the alleged uh, racial and other intolerance within the SPLC. I mean, that's sort of perfect. It's not like, I mean, it'd be one thing it was like bank fraud. Uh-huh. But the fact that there are people coming forward to say that the, the place discriminated against black employees is just delicious. Um, so anyway, there's that. And then, gosh, what else do we want to talk about? I can't even remember. I'm sorry. I'm very much out of practice with all of this. Um, at someday listeners will know just all the crazy things that I actually have on my plate these days. Um, and
1: they may know that you're also spinning
0: plates while recording. I am this. literally spinning, spinning plates and it's giving f- directions to a uh, small monkey on a unicycle.
1: <laughs> it's uh, really impressive. I wish you all could see this. The monkey is remarkably well behaved. That's why you're not hearing it. He is, he is, he is.
0: Um, so uh but you know it's it's really hard to find a really good unicycle monkey. But what's even harder to find are applicants for jobs that you need to fill. And that's why a lot of people go to things like ZipRecruiter, who is one of our sponsors for this week's episode.
1: Um a, a legendary segue. You like that one? I actually did like that one. <laughs> um, so uh uh as someone
0: who is trying to start a new business, which we can talk about more another time. Hiring is essential. Hiring is the culture. Hiring is the mission. Hiring is, um, uh, the single most important decision you can make about the kind of business you're going to have, about the kind of culture that you're going to have. And it is, um, a bear. And that's why a lot of people refer to, or use ziprecruiter.com or in this case, ziprecruiter.com slash Dingo. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash dingo. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash d-i-n-g-o, ZipRecruiter dot com slash dingo. Zip Recruiter, the smartest way to hire. So, um, Spain was really lovely. It was great to get away. Uh, Barcelona is, is this amazing little city. Um, David Brooks says it's the most beautiful city in all of Europe. I'm not sure I'm there, but you can see. Certainly... No, you're, you're here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, where's my pain collar? Um, <laughs> and, uh, but it's, it's a really great walking around city, in part because it's so compact. And one of the things I really love about it is they probably have more fantastic, just average real estate. You know, I'm, I'm a, a, I am grew up in New York City. I like looking at pretty buildings. There was this period from about, I don't know, 1850 to 1910 in almost every major city around the world, um, or every major city in Europe um, and the United States. Where I think the best apartment buildings were built. Um, this I don't. I think Beaux art is sort of part of it, you know. But always,
1: so this was this would have been just the the apartment that um, uh, Ivo. What's the guy? The Ghostbusters guy. Um, the not this not the demon, but the like crazy man who built the apartment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know you're talking about. That was just after this period. Yeah, yeah been, it, it like, goes just, into
0: Art Deco. So, like in New York, Art Deco buildings are awesome too.
1: Okay, like, so that, so that, so that the Ghostbusters apartment building that was designed to funnel yes. demons was so in a lot this of trend. A
0: lot of people who don't who didn't grow up in cities when they hear pre-war they think they mean pre-World War II. Mm-hmm. In reality, what they mean is pre-World War One. Um, and uh, so, like anything that was built around the time of Olmsted, the guy who created Central Park. Um, he created the, one of the first planned communities in Baltimore, which has these amazing houses in it. Um, but in Barcelona, just house after house after, I mean, a building after building on a block after block after block. There was a law in Barcelona for a long time that every apartment needed to have a balcony. So there's just these unbelievably ornate, uh, you know, Five, six story buildings, just one after another, each one with a balcony, sometimes with these amazing tile work and mosaics. That stuff is great. Some listeners may not know, but I'm a, I'm a bit of a Gothic cathedral aficionado. Uh, well,
1: you want to tell everyone why that is? <laughs>
0: well, in part because I, I wrote and produced some, I will be very clear, not fantastic documentaries on gargoyles. I know a lot about gargoyles. Yes, I mean the weird sort of monsters that you see on the side of Gothic cathedrals, right?
1: What was the documentary called?
0: Guardians of the... Gargoyles. Guardians of the Gate. That's right. Yeah. And as my friend Scott McLucas said, what gate? And I was like, how the hell do I know? <laughs> um, part of the problem is, is that there were a lot of different myths about the gargoyles, right? One was that there was a dragon, the gargoyle, which prowled the River Seine. And there's another... um that anyway, there's a lot of them. I can get into. it. There are a lot of reasons for, but the actual word gargoyle is actually an architectural term, which just basically means a drainage pipe that lets w- water off. Oh, uh, so the word gargle and gurgle have the same root as gargoyle.
1: Huh. Um. Wow. We need to do. You need to do a sequel podcast on gargoyles to your documentary. Um. And uh gargoyles revisited. <laughs> uh, well, we you no, know,
0: we went back and we re. When, when it became a, a potential, it became a big pledge item on PBS around the country. Uh, like if you, you know, pledged over $100, you got a copy of Gargoyles Gardens of the Gate at various, for like San Francisco and New York, um, pledge drives. And so we had to re-cut it and bump up the quality because there was some stuff in there that was not broadcast quality stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I, I produced the original version with footage, live footage, and, and still, and, and original photography from Paris, New York, DC, uh, Oxford, and a few other places for like $20,000. It was a real gonzo thing. And, it was, and I was, to that extent, I was proud of it. Cause it, part of it is I got to do all my D&D type stuff. Um, <laughs> and, um, and then because of the success of that, another, a follow-up documentary I did was, on the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Uh, it was Notre Dame Witness to History. And that was a little better, um, a little more, I would, I would not say scholarly, but a little more sort of mainstream. And um, but in the process, I learned a lot about Gothic cathedrals, medieval art, all that kind of stuff. And the reason I brought this up was uh, we went to the Gaudi, which I'd been to like 25
1: Oh, Trey's Place.
0: Yeah, totally. <laughs> and... Um, and what's fascinating about the Gaudi Cathedral, if listeners ever get a chance to go, uh, it's the um, Sagrada Familia, which is Sacred Family Cathedral, is – it's enormous. It's not done yet. They've been working on it for a 100 years or more and <laughs> um, in part because it gets no state money huh? um and it gets no church money. It's like it was a private foundational kind of charity thing and – it's the first gothic sized cathedral I mean one of those you've been to a lot of gothic cathedrals I assume you know when you take those kids to Europe yeah yeah you know those things are just huge make that sound kind of sketchy no 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 <laughs> um, yeah well I understand I apologize no I didn't mean to make it sound sketchy but it's um it's the it's the only cathedral in the world I've ever really been into except for things you know like the Washington National Cathedral which are. Gothic-esque, but not really Gothic.
1: Yeah, and which has a Darth Vader gargoyle. You're aware of that, right? I filmed that. I've been up in the- Oh, so you've actually seen that. I've seen it with my naked eyes. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, you can't see it from the I ground. You,
0: there's also one of a politician taking a bribe. Oh, really? There's I didn't another know Another one of a guy in a gas mask with a DDT canister. I was allowed up behind all that. Their... See, this wow. is one of the fascinating things about gargoyles and other marginal art. There are lots of people who don't realize that- at places like Notre Dame and the Washington National Cathedral, there are gargoyles and, and grotesque. Grotesque is a is is sort of a freaky face or something that yeah. doesn't actually drain water. Um, hidden in weird nooks and crannies that no tourist or even parishioner will ever see. And sometimes it was because the Masons wanted to do funky, weird stuff. Some of it had to do with superstitions about warding away spirits. Um, some of it was, I, I presume, just trying to make the contract last longer because it <laughs> wasn't like they were building another cathedral right away. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so there's all sorts of cool stuff up and around. If you get a tour at the Washington National Cathedral, it's really pretty cool. But the Gaudi is just Just amazingly different. It's got, it's got some Willy Wonka kind of colors to it that I'm not a huge fan of. But one of the really cool things is when you go inside, um, instead of the, the sort of classic Gothic cathedral pillars all that all at least look like they're basically straight, ionic or whatever they call those things, right? Pillars. The pillars inside the cathedral at the tops, they all try to, they all sort of branch off like they're trees. And the look is to sort of make it feel like there's a forest inside the cathedral. Hmm. And the facade, the front of the cathedral kind of looks like – remember when you were a kid and you would make so – in my family, we called them glop sandcastles. We just take wet sand and let it
1: drip. Oh, yeah. It kind of happened. Ah, so that is, is this, was this a prefigurement of, your, of the glop podcast? It was not. It was not. Although we did um, in, in – Not our, that you know of. No,
0: because I came up with the idea for the glop podcast and it was purely a play on pop culture to call it glop culture.
1: These – the seeds of later things – very deep within our mind, you have no idea. It was it was there. You had it was waiting at bu- the right time. You're right. It's possible it, there could have been some sort of inception going on. Yeah. Um, and so anyway, then we
0: went to and so one of the best things we did, and I'll put a link in the show notes because they're really good guys. Uh, we did this food lovers market tour. Barcelona has like ten or eleven of these classic old style food markets. Sort of. If you've been to Chelsea Market, you kind of know what – in New York, you kind of know what I'm talking about. Or even – what's the one on Capitol Hill, the farmer's market? Eastern Market. Eastern Market. A little bit like that where it's – some of them are food stalls where they cook stuff. Some of them are just like butchers or whatever. And we got a private tour. The company that does these things has relationships with a whole bunch of the vendors. And so these guys, when you come, you get to just say, I want to try that or you should try this. And you don't pay for any of it because it's included in the price. And you get a real sense of how locals shop, the traditional sort of foods. And it was great. I mean, it was really, really great. And this guy is moving into a whole bunch of – the guy who runs the thing who we talked to for a while is moving into a whole bunch of different cities. And um, I highly recommend doing that. And then we went to Madrid. And a lot of people told us that Madrid was going to be a disappointment. I mean, I'd been there when I was like 14. So it kind of was a blur. But we love Madrid. It was a much prettier, much more vibrant city than I thought it was going to be. And, um, we went, we did, you know, the Prado and that kind of stuff. We ate well. By the end, we were having, we were on the verge of, of ham poisoning, (laughs) um, and tapas poisoning. Um, but we did some of that. We went to Steve Hayes' house in, um, in central Madrid where, you know, Steve Hayes has been living there for, Six or seven or eight months and because they did a year abroad with the whole family. And I got to say, I was very jealous. It was, it seemed like a great life. The kids were thriving for the most part. And, um, Steve and I, you know, we did some strategery about future things and don't misunderestimate them. <laughs> and we did, uh, and this is a little teaser. We recorded the first of a what we we're hoping to be a bunch of sort of podcast things. I got to keep it a little vague about. But the process of us doing this, um, which we're going to turn into a different product down the road. But uh, but Madrid was great and it was really great. And um, we really had a lovely time. Steve is like, gone a little native on Spain. I mean, he's, like, kind of a jingoist. And it was funny. So I, when I was in Barcelona, I became very, very sympathetic to the Catalans. And when I came to visit Steve – you know, I was giving him just enough, just enormous amount of grief about his, you know, his Castilian arrogance and his support of the hegemonic rule over these, of the, over the occupied province of Catalan. And, <laughs> um, um, and that was a lot of fun. And, uh, so anyway, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know that there's a thousand and one fun little stories to tell that aren't sort of just trading on, on family, but my daughter was a good, camper was a was was a trooper about eating pork we had made this deal before we left that she doesn't want to eat pork anymore because she's very sympathetic to pigs and um, um, and I made a deal with her that I would forego pork products until we went, went to Spain um, if she agreed that when we were in Spain she would eat pork while we were there and mm-hmm. she was she was good about it but now she claims she is not going to eat pork anymore and I'm kind of not Big on pork for a while either, because again, the, if, if it was illegal to drive under the influence of pork products, um, my PUI would be very, very high. <laughs> just the enormous amount of ham and other pork stuff that you eat while you're over there. Um, it's great, but it's just eventually like, oof. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, so anyway, um, I, I'm, I gotta say, I, I'm very envious of, of the thing that Steve did by going out there. Um, I wouldn't say he's fluent in Spanish yet, but he's getting there. And, uh, it was, you know, um, for me, it was kind of perfect weather, you know, a little on the chilly side, but once you started walking and we did an enormous amount of walking, it was sort of, you know, like low sixties kind of thing. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's my grind. Um, <laughs> that's, that's my weather. And, um, and it was really, really nice not to be too invested in Twitter and all of the craziness here. And if if um, readers subscribe to the G-File or read the G-File, they'll know that when I finally sort of had to re-engage with what was going on back home, I kind of resented it because it was um, just so grotesque to me. And you kind of forget when you're outside sort of taking not paying attention to what politics are like in america these days and then you have to throw yourself back into it it's uh it's it's kind of like one of my dogs roll around and stuff Um,
1: (laughs) yes both both times that i've been on long trips abroad i have had no uh real reliable internet access and i've kind of reveled in that because i just get to like the only news i get is uh from occasionally what other people on the tour who have better internet than I do tell me something that happened. Or, and this is much rarer, I will see, like, a newspaper in a in a, in a European city with, I don't know, with Trump on the front page, and I'm, that, that, in, that indicating that, okay, something must have... <laughs> something with global implications must have happened recently. And then I can sort of, if I'm in a romance language country, I can kind of be like, okay, that... I guess it's a, there's a G8 summit and, but that's like the best. I have to like go through all these filters and then I'm like, yeah, well, who cares? I'll figure it out. If, as long as America still exists when I get back, I can figure I can work out the rest when I return. Yeah, I mean the problem I have is that I try almost never to
0: take a break from my syndicated column, which means you can never fully disengage from yeah. everything. Um, I will say though, one of the things that was really kind of nice about, about both Spain and um, the UK is that um, it was the kind of time of year. I to mean, talking about just talking about the weather for a second and the, the kind of places that we went, where you could you didn't dress downscale, but you just also didn't have to dress upscale. You could just dress nice, comfortably, which was
1: basically the perfect prescription for untucked shirts. Um, wow, your segways! You must have worked out your segway muscles over the over your vacation. Well, you know, yeah,
0: you know, I'm, I'm refreshed.
1: Yeah. So, but seriously, have you ever wondered
0: why traditional button-up button-up shirts look so long and baggy? That's because they were never meant to be worn that way. Untucked shirts were specifically designed to be worn untucked. Not non-tucked, but untucked. Untucked is the brand you've been looking for. It's the original untucked shirt, a modern solution to an old problem with no tucking or tailoring required no matter your size or shape, their shirts are the perfect untucked length. And they're also, I got to say, really good for like air travel where you want, again, you don't want to look like a slob, particularly if you're going to go straight from the plane to someplace, but you also don't want to get all dressed up um, either. Um, It's a way to look presentable and clean and and well-dressed while at the same time looking casual. So have you ever been frustrated with shirt buying in the past to say nothing
1: of pants buying
0: (laughs) (laughs) we're not going to go there with more than 50 fit combinations untucket shirts look great on tall short slim and athletic guys of all ages um yeah so like as 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 i keep saying i was originally an untucket skeptic i really like the shirts i bought them without my special discount as the host of the Sponsor podcast thing and any of that kind of stuff. I've, I've spent my own filthy lucre on them. Um, I really do like them, and um, I I legitimately recommend them. So try it on in person at one of Untucket's 50 stores or go to untucket.com to get started. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. You can save 20% on your first order by using my code, Dingo, at checkout. So that's com promo code DINGO. Not slash DINGO, but promo code DINGO. Untuckit.com promo code DINGO. Okay, so we don't have a huge amount of time left, um, but uh, we probably have a whole bunch of various and sundry things going on. What have you been doing while I was
1: gone? <laughs> the, that's the question, isn't it? It kind of is. Uh, well, I, I had things to keep myself busy. Um, I read... Uh, there was a copy of um, Heaven on Earth by Joshua Morawczyk, the updated... Fantastic book. Yeah. He has an updated version with a new chapter on 21st century socialism and its popularity and it's, how it's lingering, mm-hmm. which I was... I mean, it's, the whole book was new to me, so that was not... That was new, but that's worth reading even if people have already read the book. Uh-huh. Do you have to hear it in the office? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay.
0: I, I think I might take it with me for my speech tomorrow, but that's...
1: Whatever, go on. Okay. Um, what else have I done? So, so the chapter on Mussolini, I think, was very helpful to me when I was writing my. Favorite. I could tell. I, I had having read liberal fascism, uh, but not this until recently. Yeah. I, I was I was getting a powerful Jonah. I could smell the, your cigar odor from the past <laughs> was, no, well, it was ricocheting I was into the that. present. I was
0: not smoking cigars when I did liberal fascism. Oh, I was smoking a pipe. Oh, oh! uh, Which is a bad look. I never did. I've never done it once in public. But uh, that's a longer story. Um, No, but the the Josh Morava. It would be fun to have him on. Um, That that Heaven on Earth book is a great book. I really, really like that. John Josh is an incredibly clean writer. You know the the prose. Just, there's some writers where you can just sort of open up to a page, and you don't really need to know what got you there. You can just start reading, and Josh is one of those guys.
1: So it's he's it's like the godfather in, in book form. A little bit, yeah. So you can any scene. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I guess I have to watch The Godfather now. Um, um, what else have I done? So I I uh, went on another podcast, not this one, not my own. Uh, it's called The Legendarium Podcast, one of the... Uh, host is a fan of The Remnant and they asked... It, it focuses on fantasy literature and mm-hmm. they asked me to come on and discuss The Silmarillion. Really? Yes. Uh, How that go? It went well. I, I think I, I had just... re. So I, I tried reading The Silmarillion when I was 10 after reading The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yeah, it's about... I, I, a little later, but that Silmarillion is heavy lifting. Yes, and I gave up not long into it. But I, I recently... Uh, got myself through it, and um, I had some of the same difficulties with it as I did as a 10-year-old, but they were much lesser this time around. I was able to enjoy it to a much greater extent. But I discussed this all on the episode, uh, and I'll put the link in in the the show show notes. notes. Uh, What else have I done? Um, uh, So on the recommendation of my... Friend and your, you, I think you remember him. Uh, I hope he doesn't mind that we we cite him here, Rooney Columbus, the guy who yeah, yeah. sat next to me, who you could actually talk uh, about Game of Thrones with. Yeah, the
0: improbably named Rooney Columbus. Yeah,
1: um, he recommended that I listen to an episode of Conan O'Brien's podcast in which he interviews Jeff Goldblum, uh-huh. uh, which it was a very sensual experience. Uh, and they, they, sensual. Yeah, and this is the word I'm using. Their adjective. That's uh-huh. how they described it because they they made it very homoerotic for some reason, um, it was it was weird, but also very funny. But okay. the more the more relevant thing about it is that I, I so the way that I'm talking right now on a podcast that that like, you host, uh-huh. I thought it was weird. Um, but on Conan O'Brien's podcast, he ha, kind of has the same thing. He has two assistants there, and they just kind of are around uh-huh. occasionally, throwing their hats in the ring while Jeff Goldblum is also there. So. I guess that I guess people, I, the podcast world, likes this kind of thing more than I was aware of. I think this kind of setup is more common than I thought.
0: Yeah, no. So it's funny when I was a television producer back during the Gargoyles Guardians of the Gate phase, um, I produced this TV show called Think Tank, and with Ben Wattenberg, and one of the interesting discoveries for me was. There's a reason why a certain format in television endures, right? One host, four guests, roundtable panel, you know, that kind of thing. That's a really common news, public affairs format, mm-hmm. right? And experiments with it usually fail. Every now and then someone comes up with some new version. But there's there's a reason why that's sort of a standby. And... Even the variations of it aren't that varied from that basic model, yep. and there are all sorts of things like that in television, in radio and now podcasting and um you know it is v- very difficult to do you know the the podcast model is very much like radio right It's very difficult to do that to host something if you don't have someone to ping off of right I mean yeah. Uh, it would be better if you laughed at more of my jokes, but at least you're physically here. Ah! Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> sincerely laughed at my jokes and oh, um, no, that's harder, yeah, that's a heavier lift <laughs> and um and so it doesn't surprise me that that format is all over the place uh-huh. and the guys who are good at breaking from that format um are few and far between and I think one of the reasons why a lot of them are like either uh stand up comics right or What they do is they rely on heavy production or editing that makes it seem more natural, where you're sort of a host of like an audio documentary rather than a conversation kind of thing. And um, so I just think it
1: it makes total sense to me. But But then there's Ben Shapiro, who is truly sui generis. Yeah, that's right.
0: You know, um, as – you know, some as we used to say of Mitt Romney, surprisingly lifelike. <laughs> <laughs> I hope this gets back to him. Um, you know, I asked him if he wanted to come on the podcast for his book, so we could do a big, you know, Holly Tacker on Western civilization, and um, he says he's not coming to Washington because he doesn't do book tours; he thinks they're a waste of time. Um, okay, but uh, but we can do it by Skype or something or whatever. We'll
1: we'll figure that out. Um, um, Does he never come to Washington for anything?
0: I don't know. I've I, I've heard rumors that he's been in town. Um, because whenever he's in town, you know
1: he's on the Jewish Weather Control Committee. He, he,
0: he consults on that, and um, you know, as you know, as you know, as a guy who likes to do some some real literal shoe leather reporting every now and then i go to my shine stand at union station and i drop a benjamin on the shine guy and he gives me the skinny and as, as we know it's all about the Benjamins. it really is all about the Benjamins. <laughs> and uh he um every now and then he'll let me know when shapiro is is coming to town the problem for shapiro is he usually has a bounty on his head so he has
1: <laughs> he's wanted in seven systems uh let's see what else hey, have you ever watched this fox show the passage no um, is this about the, the vampire virus thing? Yeah, yeah. I heard of it. I heard I, – I got interested in the book, which seems to be a lot like The Stand. Yeah. Um, but I've – this is all that my interest has gone. It kind of makes me want to read the book um, or books. I guess it's a trilogy. Um, David
0: French on the Editor's Podcast said that he watched the first one and it was really auspicious a while ago and I hadn't heard more about it. And then because I was on these transatlantic flights and doing all this stuff, I watched – I downloaded the entire series and I watched it. I got to say, it started really, really well. And then it decided to take storylines that would have made for awesome seasons and truncate them down to about four-minute plot points. <laughs> really annoying i mean they basically it was like someone said okay we're gonna let you finish your season but we're canceling you at the end of the season so why don't you just burn through the entire trilogy of books and um so it only lasted a season well i don't know because i've i've i keep looking on on the interwebs to see whether or not it's actually been canceled
1: apparently it's still on the bubble yeah this is the experience i'm having with uh the movie the man who killed hitler and then the bigfoot i can't seem to find out where i can watch this it never, it never got into theaters around here, huh. and I don't know where on streaming it is. But I, for for various reasons, not all of them having to do with this show, I am desperate to watch this movie. Yeah, it I'm, just seems, I'm intrigued. it seems like, and Sam Elliott is is the star of at least the big the killing Bigfoot portion. Um, I, I need,
0: So Sam Elliott kills Hitler and Bigfoot.
1: Yes, so the the basic plot, and this is not spoiling. Really impressive if it was with one bullet. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. The basic plot, and this isn't spoiling anything because this is in the trailer that I saw. As a young man, he kills Hitler during World War II, but um, the the Third Reich manages to fake Hitler being alive for the like. He kills him in 1944, Mm -hmm. and so using like body doubles and whatnot, the Third Reich fakes Hitler being alive until. The end of the war, and so no one actually ever knows, except for him and maybe one or two other people, that he he killed Hitler, and so he just kind of languishes in obscurity until, as an old man, uh, they come back to him because Bigfoot is apparently carrying a lethal virus that has, because of the unique nature of Bigfoot, has the potential to leap the uh species barrier. yes Uh and so he has to kill big find Bigfoot and then kill him Uh and they uh, can only trust the man who killed Hitler to do this that's
0: fantastic
1: I know it's like this is the the most amazing plot for anything that I've ever heard and I still need to see the movie and when did this allegedly get released? I, I, I think it came out earlier this year, but I can i never I kept looking for it in theaters and it never got to theaters. so it must be on a streaming service somewhere interesting, but I'm desperate to see it. I need to <laughs> I understand I yeah don't, and I, like, and once I, one of us sees it, if we don't both see it, we need to discuss it on the show,
0: but I just uh, knowing that you have above average internet search skills, the, the fact that you cannot even find where to find it. Makes me wonder if this is all a big hoax, then it doesn't actually exist. Like, they just made the trailer. So, like, in 30 Rock, where- No, no, it's, uh, oh, for, uh, why are you talking about Leap Day? No, so Tracy Morgan, Tracy Tracy Morgan, uh, wants to do a biopic about Thomas Jefferson. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Where he plays all the parts. That's right. And, but because, uh, the, 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 what's his face, the- Jack Donaghy? No, his boss, um, Oh, um, Don Geist. Don Geist, uh, can't imagine the trailer for it. He says uh, he won't fund it. And so he makes a trailer for it to, uh, convince him. And it's, it's
1: really, really terrible. But anyway, maybe they just made a fake trailer. I've seen reviews of the movie though. Really? I, unless there's an elaborate gaslighting of me that's occurring. Yeah. Uh, it could be. Okay. All right. All right. Well, I will. We want to hear more. <laughs> you are authorized
0: to investigate this further.
1: Okay, so but the the passage you're not. Are you sold? Not sold. Uh, again, I thought they really did, for a broadcast television thing,
0: they actually did a really good job in the beginning, and it held my interest to the end. I really wanted to see where it was going to go, in part because I've always had a weakness for sort of the vampire genre. Mm-hmm. Um, like I liked. That's why you hired me uh, to, to some extent. Um, I liked the um. I like The Strain on FX, even though it was so creepy.
1: Um, did you finish The Strain? I did. I did. It was not, it was not a super happy ending. No. I, 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 I'm still trying to figure out what exactly the ending means. Because there was some sort of play on, like, father-son relationships. Mm-hmm. But I can't figure out what it's trying to say about them. Um, yeah, it was also very unsettling.
0: But, you know, the passage, much like The Strain, um, and I've talked about this before on the show, like, I like, my favorite part of the zombie movies is the first 10, 15 minutes before it's just straight up zombie fighting, mm-hmm. right? You know, where you see society breaking down. That's, I watched Bird Box recently and uh, finally, and I liked it. But the best parts to me were the beginning. You know, that's the part I, I like it's, it's, it's weird. It's like, I prefer watching the the, the the collapse of civilization rather than the post-collapse of civilization, um, which may explain how I've managed to maintain my enthusiasm for punditry these days. <laughs> <laughs> um, it could. Um, okay. So, anyway, uh, thanks to everybody uh, for putting up with this relatively wild. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We brought down
1: – we said the best for last. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, there is – before we get to this, one more thing. Oh, okay. I had a – no, a novel experience for me just yesterday uh-huh. uh i had a viral tweet you did it was a good tweet i retweeted it yeah, yeah you did um but it was actually going viral before you even had a yeah no i noticed that um i guess we should read it it's, it but it's kind of it'll sound weird when i read it cuz it's it's very i've i've been studying the format well this is my this will reveal some things but i i i was i did not go into this unaware I had seen tweets go viral before, and I, it's not like I processed them all into an algorithm, but I was aware of what, what could go viral. But I've, I've had this thought, the thought that went into this tweet. Well, it's very much like the Untucket joke from a week ago. Yes. Um, so, yes, here's what I said. Uh. Asterisk. This is like, a, imagine a, a screenplay. Uh, and by the way, you can follow me at jackbutler4815. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just milking this now. Uh, so imagine this That's a, what she said. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so imagine this as a screenplay. So there's like a screenplay direction at an Italian restaurant. Dialogue. Me. I'll have some antipasta and also some pasta. Waiter. But sir, you can't. If they touch, the reaction could destroy Earth. Me. Bring me what I ordered. And then last scene direction. He does as I say. Earth is destroyed. There are no survivors. <laughs> I liked it. Yeah. I liked it. Mod I mean... Smod liked it, too. Yeah, I mean... I mean, Earth is destroyed, so yeah, of course.
0: (laughs) As long as it has a happy ending, Smodo. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so I came back from being gone for almost a month, a month, whatever, four weeks, whatever you want to call it. Um, And uh, so I got all this stuff on my desk. I'm opening up mail. And one of the things I got was um, from the Council of Economic Advisors, this book, The Economic Report of the President, which I was telling Jack... When I was a research assistant at AI many moons ago, this was one of the most important books in my life because it was where you found the tables in the back. This was basically pre-internet.
1: That's where you had what? There was a time. No, actually, I do have pre-internet memories, but people not much younger than me don't. Yeah, I mean, uh, anyway. So I went through. uh,
0: There were tables in the back that you could figure out how to deflate. Um. How to create constant dollars? Like if you wanted to put something into nineteen ninety-two dollars, there was the tables in the back that oh, you used
1: to do that. So not not like a way to make dollars constantly come to you. No, no. Oh, okay. It was not uh,
0: like the rosebud cheat in The Sims. Um, it was the CPI table or something like that. Anyway, it was a big. It was like one of the first things I worked on when I was at AI was this book um, for Ben Wattenberg called Values Matter Most, which was just full of data and charts, and I was in charge of all that stuff. And anyway, so this book has always been near and dear to my heart. And I pointed it out to Jack and I was reminiscing and it was a very moving experience for us both. <laughs> and then he said, oh, wait, wait, I heard about this. There's This is the thing with the interns. And and then, Jack, you can take it from here.
1: Yeah. So I had seen on uh, on Twitter that uh, apparently the list of interns who helped with this is suspect, shall we say. I will read to you some of the names of interns who supposedly contributed to this work uh, one of them is Catherine Janeaway, which <laughs> was the captain in uh, Star Trek Voyager. Yeah. Uh, also, John Cleese, uh-huh. um, who was the twenty-third president of the United States. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> member of Monty Python. Uh, let's see who else is on here. Aunt May from Spider-Man. Uh, Peter Parker, also from Spider-Man. Uh, Steve Rogers, Captain America. Uh-huh. Um, John Snow, but spelled with an H in the John, which I think is incorrect.
0: I think that's incorrect.
1: Um, Bruce Wayne uh-huh. finding time in between his multiple passions. Uh, yeah, and those are the those are the more famous names of interns yeah. <laughs> who contributed to this volume. And uh, why is that? <laughs> why on earth is that the case? Yeah, I don't.
0: I, I I I would like someone to come forward. I mean, maybe it's just you know because Kevin Hassett's the guy in charge of it. Our friend, former colleague, Kevin Hassett, uh, who is a comic book nerd.
1: Um, oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but there are—it's not exclusively comic book things in there. So you yeah. have um, John Cleese, you have Game of Thrones, you have, um, yeah, it's not just comic book things. I mean,
0: one really interesting possibility, which I will stipulate is very unlikely. Yeah, is that they're accurate? Yeah, that he basically only looked for interns oh. with crazy weird <laughs> names. <laughs> it's like I don't care if you had a 4.0 at Stanford. You know, what's your name? If you're not named after some pop culture character, you can't get this internship. Um, but I, th- I think that's probably unlikely.
1: Uh huh.
0: Um, I can't like muster any outrage about it, but I can imagine it. It just doesn't
1: feel super professional. <laughs> uh, so, but when I said the possibility. That they could be accurate, I. You're you're discarding the po- you're discounting the possibility that it's those it's actually those people, like yes, Bruce I don't Wayne, think it was Captain Janeway, or Bruce Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you say so, I mean, sounds about as plausible as what you described, but um, yeah. So anyway, isn't that fa- we
0: didn't make up any of that? Um, you can
1: look it up on the internet. Um,
0: and if it's on the internet, it has to be
1: true. That's what Abraham
0: Lincoln said. Um, so. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. I promise you'll hear more announcements and developments, um, as we can. I am leaving for Dallas in, a, in an hour. And then on th- Friday, I'm debating or discussing nationalism with Rich Lowry. I think that. I think it's Friday. I hope it's so. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> it's this week. Um, we're going to see if we can record it to make it a podcast. Um, and, um, iTunes, et cetera. iTunes, yeah. You know, if you could review us on iTunes, you know, we've been doing these evergreen shows. We dropped the frequency a bit because I've been so crazy busy and I've been traveling. So we've fallen out of the top 200 on iTunes of late. It would like, it'd be nice to get back up in there. Um, the real way to get back up in there and get back into the top 20 or 10 is with word of mouth. And so, I'm, you know, I'm relying on you guys out there uh you're hugely important to the success of this podcast is just simply spreading the word Uh we're pretty good about retweeting um praise and chatter about this podcast on twitter uh, or t- the the ai on that runs the the twitter account is uh at jonah remnant mm-hmm. and um and if you have ideas for apparently so apparently the um deep dive on opioids was quite popular uh, the
1: oipisode
0: the oipisode and um, lots of people want us to do more of that kind of stuff um, there's some that we know we want to do at some point we really want to do the letters of mark for uh, privateer hackers uh, as an episode not an it. episode yeah and as a policy <laughs> um, and but you know if you guys out there have suggestions for other single issue deep dive topics we're uh, glad to hear them and um, and thanks for sticking with us you know we're uh, I've been catching a lot of grief from a lot of different angles of late. Um, and, um, it's nice to know that there are people out there supporting us. And I, I personally really appreciate
1: it. So, yeah. All those obtuse angles. Yes. I mean, I, I'm,
0: I, as again, as Kevin Williamson says, I deserve better enemies. Um, <laughs> and I, I will say that. I mean, <laughs> that I, can I, be arranged. I don't know if that sounds too arrogant or not, but like, um, most of the people of late who've been taking pot shots at me, um, I don't have a lot of respect for, and so I'm sort of in this catch twenty two. If I give them attention, I'm giving them exactly what they want. But at the same time, the things that they're writing and saying are so stupid that you kind of don't want them to go unresponded to. So it's 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 a challenge.
1: Just call me by my name, you coward. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm kidding. I, I'm not one of Jonah's enemies uh, that he knows of. Yeah.
0: Well, you you this could be the long con with you, right? I mean, you're laying low as a sort of a. a as an agent behind enemy lines you're a scroll but we can get into that another time anyway so uh, i want to thank all the listeners again uh please download us where you can give us reviews where you can spread the word where you can and i promise we'll get back to various wonkery and whatnot um sometime soon and until then i'll see you next time
1: you Are you done with my pen? I guess so.
0: We should just keep a jar of pens in
1: here. Yeah, it's not a bad idea. I would have brought two down, but I... I
0: understand. A, yeah. you know, one day I'll get an assistant who anticipates my needs.
1: <laughs> one day? <laughs> uh One
0: day.